The following sermon is from the Westminster Pulpit, extending the worship ministry of Westminster Presbyterian Church, Lancaster, Pennsylvania. We are a local congregation of the Presbyterian Church in America. Please contact us for permission before reproducing this message in any format. Luke chapter 8, I'm going to read a short passage, verses 22 through 25. Listen to God's holy word. One day Jesus said to his disciples, let us go over to the other side of the lake. So they got into a boat and set out. As they sailed, he fell asleep. A squall came down on the lake so that the boat was being swamped and they were in great danger. The disciples went and woke him, saying, Master, Master, we're going to drown. He got up and rebuked the wind and raging waters. The storm subsided and all was calm. Where is your faith? He asked his disciples. In fear and amazement, they asked one another, Who is this? He commands even winds and water. And they obey him. This is God's holy word. Dateline Joplin, Missouri. May 23rd, 2011. A warning call came over the loudspeakers of St. John's Regional Medical Center saying, execute code gray. Sunday evening staff might have thought, if they had not been watching the weather, that it was just a drill, just a precaution in a tornado-prone region. But they had almost no sooner completed the steps to move patient beds into the hallways in response to that code when the entire nine-story building was slammed by a monster tornado three-quarters of a mile wide upon the ground. Every window in a nine-story hospital was blown out. Most patients were cut by glass. A suction wave literally ripped IV lines out of patients' arms and tossed staff members through empty window frames into the parking lot. Within minutes, the entire hospital and much of the town, as you know, of Joplin, Missouri, was a scene of stunned chaos and wreckage like no one could possibly have imagined. 2,000 buildings damaged either beyond existence or beyond repair. A third of the town in ruins. There were trees, I understand, that were not only without leaves, And without branches, they were without bark by this monster storm. A supercell weather system in which cold and warm fronts collided uniquely over the central USA this spring and left much devastation and death. You know, I think about tornadoes 
It always amazes me that they are unique to North America. Do you realize that? There's no other place in the world that has tornadoes as a general thing. I can't explain that. A tornado is just air. It's just like the air some of you are fanning right now. You want to make it move. But you certainly don't want it to move at 95 or 110 miles an hour. Because if it did, it would lift you out of your seat and wreck this room and break out the windows and destroy this place. Just air. When you think about that, what, what just the motion of air can do, you maybe can stop for a minute and, and get a little scared of this creation. It's almost like, you know, the creation can go rogue and decide that it will have a rampage every now and then when God is not looking. Is that what happened in Joplin, Missouri? just a few weeks ago. Luke's gospel has been giving us reasons to be astonished by Christ. I've called this series The Astonishment, or The Gospel of Astonishment. And we've been astonished by his teaching authority, by his healing miracles, by bringing people back from the dead, by ejecting demons. And we've been astonished now by something new that simply leaves people open-mouthed, not knowing what in the world to say. As in the middle of a lake of Galilee, apparently at night, the other Gospels say it was at night, he proved that he was the supreme commander of nature. And he left everyone speechless with awe. There's probably several layers of lessons that could be drawn from this rather familiar text of calming the storm. But above all, I I hope it would be focused clearly so that you would realize that Christ is the Lord of the stormy seas of your life. And he asks to be trusted by you amid the heaving storms that you or those close to you might be experiencing. The first point I want to make out of this text, there'll be four points altogether today, and the first is really about background, just so that you understand what's happening here, and I call this point the perfect storm. Verse 23 tells us what happened. A squall came down on the lake until the boat was being swamped, and they were in great danger. You know, in early Bible days, the sea, the ocean, was feared by people. In the book of Revelation, those who who love the beach and the seashore are always upset by the fact that in the different metaphors of eternity, it says there's going to be no more sea. I'm not sure that that's entirely literal as a geographical description of the shores of the new heaven and the new earth, but what it is telling you is that something that was of a great threat to biblical people is going to be gone. The sea was always a threat. From the Mediterranean Sea came boats bearing people like the Phoenicians and and Egyptians and people who would come as foreign invaders to Bible lands and their armies would disembark and march in and take over, pillage and burn. So why wouldn't you fear the sea? If you're a, a land-bound farmer, the sea was a place of mystery, a place of power. Storms came from it. No good came from the sea. And so it's not a wonder that in the Old Testament, when 
the power of God and his unique sovereign control of all things, when he was said to be one who could control the sea, that was a great attribute for God to have. Psalm 89 says, You, O Lord, rule the surging sea when its waves mount up. You still them. In other words, this mysterious, ominous power that nothing else could control, God could control. But now we're talking about the Sea of Galilee, which really probably better should be called the Lake of Galilee, also called the Lake of Gennesaret, same place. A small body of fresh water. If you're familiar with the map of Palestine at all, you see it there, linking the the north-south course of the Jordan River. And it's a very peaceful place. Those of you who had visited it probably have seen it as I did just one time as a, a very calm, lovely spot. But it's a place subject to violent storms for particular reasons. For one, it's 700 feet below sea level. That's very significant because it's only a matter of not that many miles from the Mediterranean. If you can picture in your mind going east from the Mediterranean and the land dropping 700 feet in that distance, it's, a very, it's in a bowl, a very significant low place, surrounded by hills with mountains to the north, it's a weatherman's nightmare. Warm and cold air masses are going to move about there into that bowl of cool water, and storms are going to result, as they do. Now, Luke calls the storm that happened, or at least the English translation calls it, a squall. Matthew uses a stronger word, which we don't know exactly how to translate, but it comes closer to something like a tsunami. It was a very powerful, rare storm. And here was a small craft with a dozen or more men upon it, Jesus and the main band of disciples, probably a sailing craft, but not that big, tossed around about like a plastic bottle cap in this riotous sea, and the boat was filling up faster than the men could possibly bail it out. Now, we know, remember, that a number of these disciples were fishermen. This was their home ground. They were used to this lake used to its weather variances. They knew all about it. If anybody could deal with it, people like Peter and James and John and Andrew could do it. But they were out of their depth. The masters of seagoing challenges were panicking and were not equal to this maritime emergency. You older adults might possibly remember one of the greatest inland sea disasters of our generation or lifetime. In 1975, for some of us, actually a a famous pop song came out of the wreck of the Edmund Fitzgerald. The Edmund Fitzgerald was a 700-some-odd long freighter on the Great Lakes. Steel-reinforced hull, state-of-the-art when it was built in 1958. This huge ship was caught in a hurricane-like gale in Lake Superior. And it happened so fast that people aren't really sure, but they theorize that that steel-reinforced 700-foot-long hull snapped like a chicken bone, and the ship went down in a matter of minutes. If Jesus and his disciples faced anything like that, how on earth were they to cope, or how on sea were they going to cope with a threat like this? 
I believe we are meant to see this dire storm as a divinely appointed vehicle to teach disciples something about the power of God and their need for active faith. If we never had to meet difficulties or stress or even real danger in our lives, we wouldn't grow into a fullness of trust in the Lord's plan and way for us. Storms in life, both literal and figurative, are God's way of introducing us to deeper draughts of experiencing His grace and His provision. Now, it's quite possible. In fact, I know it's not just possible. It's probable that recently storms or squalls of some kind have broken out in some of your lives. I know what a few of them are. People unemployed, people who got calls this week to say, she's dead. She died all of a sudden. People who are waiting for medical tests to come and tell them, is there something seriously wrong or is it nothing? Relationships, jobs, money, you name it. There are squalls going on in the lives of many of you. Earlier in Scripture, the psalmist in Psalm 69 compared perils that come in our lives to the situation of seamen being in trouble. I'm not sure that the psalmist was was probably on dry land when he cried out this way, Save me, O God, for the waters have come up to my neck. Let not the flood sweep over me or the deeps swallow me. Life can seem like that, can't it? Listen on and see what God was teaching. Secondly, we have revealed for us after the situation of the perfect storm a sight of the master and commander of all storms. Now, it's so interesting what Jesus was doing at first in this text, and it's deliberate as God inspired this chapter and gave it to us in in so few words. What was he doing? Was he rowing? Was he bailing? Was he at the tiller steering the boat? He was asleep. And I'm amazed as I listen to this that he could sleep in the midst of this terrible storm. Probably he was soaking wet. Waves were splashing over him. He's laying on boards. I wonder what kind of a pillow he had, maybe a robe or a coat or something. But he was sleeping while all this was going on. I think it was last Tuesday, this past Tuesday evening, we had a Apparently, a good-sized thunderstorm in the middle of the night. Wednesday morning, my wife said, you didn't hear that storm last night, did you? I think you slept through it. I said, what storm? Obviously, I did sleep through it. Our dog didn't, by the way, and was quite unhappy, I'm told, with the storm. I was dead to the world. I didn't hear it, didn't know it happened. Here's Jesus, probably exhausted from ministry to people. It's a draining thing to minister to scores of people. And somehow he was sleeping. The commentators rightly point out what we have in this passage is a dual picture of the humanity of Christ and the divinity of Christ very close together. Here was an exhausted man who needed sleep. And and he was able to somehow get it in the midst of all this chaos and turmoil And yet, minutes later, he was not an exhausted, weak, helpless man. He was God in flesh, commanding nature. Pretty amazing, the contrast that happens there within just a few words. 
Master, we're perishing. That was the cry that awakened Jesus. Yes, it was good that the disciples knew where to appeal for help, but think of the way in which they appealed. Not, Master, there's a problem here. Uh, We're sure you're capable to do something. Tell us what should be done. No, it was almost on the verge of hysteria, wasn't it? Men who were dying and knew it and desperately said, what can we do? In one of the other Gospels, there's actually the tone in it, a little bit of sarcasm, where, where it's recorded that one of them said, we're, we're drowning here, don't you care? In other words, Jesus was just apparently not looking at or, or interested in what was going on. Well, then, of course, comes the great miracle. How do you rank miracles? You know, do you rank miracles from one to ten? By greatness, raising of Lazarus, that has to be pretty powerful. Is this one a ten? Can you think of something greater than a man commanding nature and seeing it respond as a miraculous act? You know, some people would, I'm sure there'd be liberal commentaries, commentators. We've, we've even got the dishonesty of liberal commentators. For example, when it said in another place Jesus was walking on the lake, the Greek preposition is very careful and precise. He walked on the water, and yet this famous commentator says, oh, well, it meant to say he walked by the water, so he was actually on the beach, and maybe they thought he was on the water, and they couldn't really tell, but he wasn't actually walking on the water. He was walking. No, Greek prepositions make the case there. He was on the water. Now, these seamen, in this case, he wasn't walking on the water here. He was in the boat. But seamen here are not about to say, well, yes, Jesus stood up and said something, but the storm was subsiding anyway, so the end of the storm just coincided with his waking up. No, the text is absolutely decisive in the way it says. He rebuked the waters and the storm subsided. Experienced seamen know how a storm ends, and they knew how this one ended. Did you notice the verb, depending on your English translation, it probably has the verb that he rebuked the storm. You rebuke somebody, you know, an impatient or angry parent rebukes a child who's doing something dangerous or, or mean to another child. Stop that right now. You decisively arrest something. And this is actually a common verb for Luke. He used it in other ways. Chapter 4, verse 35, when Jesus ordered a demon to be quiet, it said he rebuked the demon. In 439, it says he rebuked a fever in Peter's mother-in-law. Beyond this text, in 942, it will say he would rebuke again an evil spirit. Stop! Get out! Leave! Don't go any further. To rebuke means to halt something with an authoritative command of power as when a five-star general walks out of his office, sees a private in the hallway, and says, Private, go do this. There's no question about doing it. You do it. I don't know why I had in mind, I know not everyone reads the wonderful books of J.R.R. Tolkien's Lord of the Rings, 
drama, but many young people do, and many adults as well. I picture the scene of a famous rebuke in those fictional stories when Gandalf the wizard is leading the the band, Frodo and the others, in the mines of Moria, and along comes the most frightening, amazing, astonishing enemy they could possibly face, the fiery, 40-foot-tall Balrog. And Gandalf is on the narrow stone bridge forbidding the Balrog from following the band. And he stands there and with a commanding voice, he says, you shall not pass. That's a rebuke. And that's how Jesus spoke to this storm. Now, it's impressive enough to banish disease or raise somebody from the dead. Maybe people could say, oh, well, you know, parlor tricks. Uh, Jesus got somebody who wasn't really sick to pretend that he was sick and, and rise up. Or he got a man who wasn't really blind to pretend he was blind and then he was okay. Look, you can't fake it when it comes to weather, can you? When you rebuke weather and it obeys, there's no fakery. There's no sleight of hand going on. We, 20 centuries later, can pretty accurately predict weather. Don't you love it when they interrupt all the TV shows because the meteorologists have spotted a hook-shaped pattern in the radar, so for the next three hours, we have to watch this hook-shaped pattern proceed across the mountains while we miss our movie we wanted to see or something. And we, boy, we can watch what the weather's going to do. Maybe we can predict just about where it's going to strike and when, but can we stop it? Can we change its course? Can we tell it, you shall not pass? If we find someone who can do that, we should pay some pretty close attention. Here is someone, as a matter of fact, who created clouds and created mountains and brought the first rains upon the earth from the oceans, who created the atmosphere to work in its patterns of absorbing water and then bringing it back again. And so in this miracle, what are we seeing but the Creator's own power? Exercised by Jesus the Son, the co-creator with His Father. Well, He is master and commander even of the powers of nature. But now thirdly, the lesson really focuses in the stillness after the storm as Jesus asked a question of his disciples, and that makes it a question for us if we call ourselves his disciples. It's a personal question. It asks, where is your faith? And you see, that question was also a rebuke. It was a gentle rebuke, but it was a rebuke. Why didn't you have faith there, men? Why did you panic? Why did you fall apart? Why were you so desperate? Why did you come to me hysterically? Assuming possibly that I either didn't know or didn't care what was going on. You see, Jesus wasn't actually saying, why don't you have faith right now that the storm is over? He was saying, why didn't you have it 10 minutes ago? Where was it? When it should have been applied to the situation of chaos and disruption. Now, let me tell you three quick reasons why I think they deserve this rebuke, and we deserve it when we don't activate our faith in the storms of life. Number one reason, 
the disciples should have considered that the reason they were in this boat at that particular hour, at that place, when this storm struck, was because Jesus ordered them to depart and cross the lake. In other words, he put them in the path of the storm. He, who knew things in advance, had already proved that he did, had divinely ordered them to be here. They were 100% under his guidance. He took his friends into this crisis. Now, if you take that seriously and then you apply it to yourself, do you naively suppose that having Christ as your Savior and Lord and saying, Jesus lives in me, he's my pilot, he's my guide, he's my Lord, he's sovereign over everything, means that you will never meet up with danger or crisis in this world. That, that in other words, when you're following his sovereign will and, and obeying him and realizing his plan, every time there's a major thing in the road called crisis or, or swampy boat, he's going to steer you around it. Is that what you imagine? You're just as wrong as you could be. Traffic accidents, unemployment, Financial problems, deaths in the family, lawsuits against you, and your own death can and will come about when you're in the will of God following his plan. The good shepherd, yes, doesn't intend lasting harm for his sheep. But his sheep die, you know. And so what that must mean is that he's ready to bring his sheep home to their final harbor and safe refuge And he is not promising that they're going to avoid a crisis or a danger. When we meet a crisis, we can know that it's in his plan. It's in God's providential overview. He knew we were coming to it, and he's ready to lead through it. Second reason they might have deserved a rebuke for absence of faith is this. Jesus had just been modeling for them passively doing it, but nevertheless modeling for them an attitude of perfect trust in God. How did he do that? He slept. He slept through the big storm that caused everybody else panic. Well, yes, it was because he was tired. But isn't it true that if you can sleep that way as if you have no cares in the world, it's because, in a manner of speaking, you don't have any cares in the world. Jesus could not panic because he knew his father was in charge, and he had modeled for them an attitude of calm that the, the modeling, the example, did not rub off. But then this third reason, and maybe it's the, the one that indicts them the most of all, the reason disciples got a mild rebuke in him asking, where is your faith, is this. No matter how much danger threatened them in that particular circumstance, they should have realized something, and that is this simple fact. Jesus was in the boat with them. You know, they acted as if the danger was only happening to them and he was somewhere else. No, he was there. And so the reasoning, the logic is, anything that was going to befall them had to strike him. Did they not understand that? Let me tell you, the older I get, the more I come to believe that The greatest promise Christ gave us when he departed this world is also one of the simplest. And it's just profound in its depths. 
the very best promise, I believe, Jesus gave us, you know it. It's when he said, I will be with you always to the end of the world. Do you comprehend how much that says if he is with me, with his disciple, in the circumstance, whatever it is in my life, when the storm is rocking my boat, I'm never, ever able to say, I'm all alone in this boat. There's nobody here to help me. It's not happening to anybody else. It's just happening to me. I can't ever say that. Because he said, by my spirit, I am with you. And I could claim at any time of trouble in my life a verse, a passage that I have read to many people the night before surgery as I've gone to their hospital room or, or met them at their home perhaps before the, the, the time of meeting with the surgeon the next day. Many times I've resorted to Isaiah 43.1 and following. It's Old Testament, yes. But it's a promise that relates to the Lord our Savior And it's just as much a New Testament promise as the Scripture says this, Fear not, for I have redeemed you. I have called you by name. You are mine. When you pass through the waters, I will be with you. And through the rivers, they will not overwhelm you. For I am the Lord your God, the Holy One of Israel, your Savior. I will be with you. That should be an enormous thing in the consciousness of every Christian. God, our Savior, is with us. Why should we have faith in the midst of a crisis? Because whatever's happening to me is happening to him. He knows it. He understands it. He's planned it. And he knows the way through. What greater confidence and encouragement could you possibly have in any crisis that's going on in your little boat. Fourth and finally, Luke 8.25 has one more question. This time it's not just a personal question, and it's not just for disciples. It's a question for anybody to ask. A question for the ages, if you will. The question is, who is Jesus? You hear the disciples ask it there? They've asked it in different ways all along. Every time they saw a healing, every time they saw the son, uh, someone's son raised up, a demon cast out, they've looked at each other and said, wow. This time, they looked as never before to each other and said, who is this guy? I always think of the line, movie line, Butch Cassidy and the Sundance Kid. Remember that? These two daring desperados, they're robbing all these trains, and finally the president of the railroad company had enough. They blew up a train, and then along came this experienced posse, riding, riding, riding. And and they tried every trick, going in streams and riding over rocks where they'd leave no tracks and everything. And every time they kept looking, and there was the posse coming. And they'd try to shake them again, and they'd look from the hilltop, and there they were, still coming relentlessly. And, And Butch says to Sundance, Who are those guys anyway? Well, that's what they were saying about Jesus. Who is this that can command nature? And if he can do this, if if nature is to him like a well-trained dog told to heal and it heals, then what can he not do? 
Is there any limit on him? And you see, they were just beginning to awaken to what would be later written in the Scriptures. John 1 saying, all things were made by him and through him, and without him nothing was made that has been made. Or Colossians 1, that tremendous passage about the enormity of Christ where Paul wrote to say, by him, Christ, all things were created, things in heaven and on earth. He is before all things, and in him all things hold together. He can readjust the molecular bonds if he wants to. He can turn planets around and reverse their order if he wanted to. And Christian friend, we're learning in this text that the man who went to the cross for us and broke open the tomb for us is creation's supreme commander. Do you believe that? Do you believe that the one you call Savior and Lord has all power in heaven and earth. That he's going to come one day and his second coming, the Scripture says, is going to be the consummating event that's going to wrap up the history of this planet as we know it and change the universe. Now, if you can personally say, according to the gospel of the cross, that Jesus Christ, this commander of nature, lives in me by the Holy Spirit, then you have the admiral of every ocean in the tiny vessel of your life. Is that powerful stuff or what? Let me tell you, I can live on that for a long time. And if you are daily seeking out the course he's charting for you according to the revealed word of God and the spirit of God, you will never have or should never have very many occasions to say, why, I'm terribly off course. Look at this storm that's coming. No, you say, on the course I've been on that God has ordained for me, there's a storm. He's here. He's in it. Lord, steer my craft through this rough time. Our master and commander does not ordinarily plan to deliver Christian believers from evil and difficulty by always steering around it. He might do that. You know, there are times when we give God praise. We say, oh, this could have happened. You know, this happened to my friend. I was in identical circumstance, and it didn't happen to me. Oh, praise the Lord. He, he, you know, he helped me avoid it. Well, that's great. Are you ready to say praise the Lord? He took me right through it. He saw it, he knew I had to face it, and he brought me right through. And he'll do that even if it means your physical death, and he brings you through to the safe harbor of eternity. And so what matters is not how high the wind is or how tall the waves. What matters is who is with you in your boat. He who dwells with you asks you this question. Where is your faith? Are you ready to apply it and trust him in the storm that's either upon you today or may well be there day after tomorrow? May God be praised. Our Father, we ask, O God, that you help us to put faith to work to not let it lay idly by and say, I trust God for eternity, and now faith is in cold storage for the next 50 years. Help us to use our faith, to trust you in the crises we face for your honor and glory. 
May Jesus get the praise. Amen.